640 Toronto presents Think Tank. Two guests, Toronto's top stories. Now, let's meet the guests. Oh, my goodness. And you want to do the little light lifting on Friday. It's exhausted. Everybody's worked so hard all week. So why not bring in, um, you know, a, a, a radio veteran and an up-and-coming star? And that up-and-coming star is Roy Green. Roy, it, <laughs> it is great to have uh, the host of the Roy Green Show on. Uh, you can hear him coast-to-coast live on these uh, great uh, chorus stations like ours, like 900 CHML and Hamilton and the Hammer, where they've got the Grey Cup next week. How's that Grey Cup fever uh, building up in uh, in the Hamilton area from what you hear, Roy? How's that? You're, you're, you, know, you know the city well enough. Well, the balloon is deflated again. <laughs> That's the Ticats, actually. Yes, their balloon. Anyway, you know, I tell them <laughs> at the beginning of the season, don't even inflate the thing. Oh, man. I well, want... no, it's just, a, it's just a sad reality that the Tiger Cats just seem to be scratching at the door. They're like the dog at the front door that's wagging tail, hoping mm. to be let in. Yeah. I'm going to get in trouble in the neighborhood now. I, I don't think so. I, I'm a boyhood uh, Cats fan, and uh, I yeah, when you're in an eight- or nine-team league and you haven't won in 25 years, that's like being an NHL team and not having won for 63 years. So, I mean, what would that be where like? Where does that happen? Right, exactly, said the Montreal Canadiens fan. I got where you're coming from. Coulter Bouchard, meantime, is on uh, the edge. And uh, the veteran Coulter, you must be, uh, you're coming to the end of your uh, radio career. And why? What have you heard? But um, but I appreciate you being on with us this morning. I, I might have got the bios mixed up. Whatever. You guys are both doing great jobs. Sorry about that. End of my career. Greg Brady, don't threaten me <laughs> with a good time. I'm 32, but I could retire tomorrow. Absolutely. Let's not give credit to the Montreal Canadiens for having won more recently than the Leafs. It's still been, what, Roy, 30 years? Give me a break. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's been 30 years, but which team was the last Canadian team to hoist the Stanley Cup? And which was the last Canadian team to get into the Stanley Cup finals? Yeah, I I was in. Uh, yeah, that's. These are all excellent points. Well, actually, it was the last team. I I, I forget about the COVID NHL uh, playoff seasons. Those were such fun. Empty arenas, yeah, coaches in yeah. masks. Good times. Let's start. You get guys more upset with each other than talking sports. <laughs> I know, I know. It's gone on too long, and uh, we must put a stop to it. All right. Well, let's talk the serious business. It is great to have both of you on, though. I'm you know I'm fans of both of you. Um, violence in Montreal uh, the last two days of an anti-Semitic nature. There's no question about that. I want to play you a clip from what happened at Concordia University. There was a demonstration there. Groups clashed, turned into a brawl. It wasn't just shouting at each other and grabbing at flags. Here's student Adam Gordon explaining what happened on campus at Concordia on Wednesday. You support genocide. He was screaming, you guys are baby killers. 10,000 isn't enough for you, so on and so forth. And, you know, and even throughout all that screaming, people who were listening to this and who were being screamed at kept saying, no, that isn't what we're supporting. No, we don't support the death of innocent civilians. No, we don't, you know, support innocent people getting hurt or or being affected by this. And the screaming just kept going and going and going until eventually that escalated into into physically grabbing flags from our hands, attempting to physically grab flags from our hands. Um, And then the shoving. So that's at Concordia University, but I don't doubt there's been tension at every university and college. Roy, I I think of university and college as such a joyous time. Sure, there's pressures. You don't have any money. You're trying to get the right marks. You're trying to figure out who you are as an adult. Um, But I also it it breaks my heart to think about university students being so engaged in this conflict and not feeling safe. Um, The prime minister has been under big pressure to say more all around the clock about university campuses and everywhere. 
What's the reason in your mind that we haven't heard more from Prime Minister Trudeau? Mm, uh, Greg, setting aside for a moment that it took Trudeau hours on October 7th to publicly condemn Hamas terrorist murders, rapes and kidnappings, let me uh, begin answering your question with a question. Had in Canada there been large numbers of people gathering in various communities over a period of several weeks, publicly shouting and waving signs and flags, calling for the literal murders of an entire minority community in Canada, how long would it have taken the current prime minister to furiously type his reaction on Twitter? Had a religious figure called for the extermination of all members of that same minority community, how long would it have taken Mr. Trudeau to express his open revulsion of any such action? The minority community is, of course, Canada's multi-generational Jewish community. What Trudeau has repeatedly tweeted is that Israel may defend itself against Hamas according to international law. That's a vapid abdication of his responsibility and typical of this prime minister. Coulter, how do you view it? Does Justin Trudeau need to be doing more? Is Roy right in calling him out? I think anytime something affects us personally, and this war affects every single Canadian, we want our leaders to show they care. We want basic empathy. And this isn't to excuse a perceived lack of action, which I think is shared by many Canadians. But even Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun, which I don't think anybody listening or on this call right now would ever call him a Trudeau stan, even he said the prime minister should be applauded for his strong response. He had said, I know emotions are high. People are scared. Attacking each other is not who we are as Canadians. He went on. He's very strong. It was a very impassioned speech. It um, it was powerful to listen to. I'm sure it was powerful uh, if you were in the room, especially. But we want our leaders to show us that they're doing something. And to Roy's point about furiously typing something, mm-hmm. I mean, short of flying there himself and engaging in, I mean, armed combat, I don't really... He's the Prime Minister of Canada. He's here. He needs to show that he's leading on all fronts. And I don't think anything anybody does would ever be seen as doing enough. And when it comes to university campuses, these are supposed to be the places where, like you said, Greg, you find out who you are. You discover yourself. You discover who you are, certainly politically. I think it's important. And in fact, I think it's a cornerstone of anyone's time at post-secondary, any post-secondary institution that you peaceably protest for what you believe in. I think we've all done that. Um, And I think it's an important part of growing up and and transitioning from a teenager into a 22-year-old. But when it comes to violence on campus, when it comes to violence anywhere, completely inexcusable. And to see in one clip a professor from another public, um, or sorry, post-secondary institution actually engaging in armed fighting with people, or sorry, um, uh, in, in like in violence with other people, is is abhorrent. I don't know why this is being allowed. And when it comes to people waving flags, calling for the murder of innocent civilians based on race, based on religion. I mean, why aren't these yeah. people being arrested for inciting violence and for hate speech? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Roy, I know Doug Ford was at a speech um, earlier last week and he said, I don't direct the police. But I'm like, what law is that against? I want politicians. We're seeing it right now in the UK with the prime minister saying, hey, go ahead and hold this rally tomorrow on Armistice Day. But I'm holding the police chiefs to account to do the right things here. I, I think that's a reasonable thing for a politician to say, don't you? Yeah. And Francois Legault basically said the same thing. Yeah. He expects the Quebec police to step up and step in. And they have not. That situation at Concordia, and we're going to be speaking about this in some detail tomorrow on my program, Mm -hmm. that situation at Concordia speaks exactly to that. The the university security um, guards, they did basically nothing. They were told to be neutral. Other security guards there were were beaten. No, this is a situation where Canadian police need to step up. By the way, Mr. Trudeau should have gone to Israel. Other leaders did of the G7. He did not go. 
There's Trudeau immediately responding to initial claims that Israel had bombed a hospital in Gaza and pointing the accusatory finger toward Israel. After that position was disproved, it still took Trudeau days to confirm Canada's agreement with evidence the explosion in the parking lot of the Gaza hospital was because of a terrorist group's misfired rocket aimed at Israel. I think Trudeau is following the lead of Canadian universities, refusing to quickly Mm. and decisively address the from the river to the sea demonstrations and letter-writing campaigns, which is a call for the extermination of all Jews. Um, I want to come to what's happening in the UK tomorrow because I think it's got uh, it's got a lens that could happen um, in Toronto, in Ottawa here on Remembrance Day. I know we're going to honor our veterans in schools today, but for the most part, civic ceremonies are tomorrow on the actual November 11th. Here's Rishi Sunak, the uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, talking about the Armistice March and his expectations tomorrow. This is a decision that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has made. Now, my job is to hold him accountable for that, and we've asked the police for information on how they will ensure that this happens. You know, my view is that these marches are uh, disrespectful. I think it's a big ass to ban these uh, this march, uh, Coulter. I'm hoping cooler heads prevail here in Toronto. There's been some subtext that they'll march on Sunday and have their bigger demonstration on Sunday and give tomorrow one day out of 365 to our uh, our brave women and men that have fought in conflict and serve us um, even today in the armed forces. Do you see it as disrespectful to march on whatever side of the conflict you appear to be on during Remembrance Day or Armistice Day? Well, I think it's a sign of intelligence to be able to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time, right? And a cornerstone of democracy is the right to peaceful, and that is key, peaceful protest. That is one of our most sacred freedoms. And these are the same freedoms that were fought for and won by the very people Armistice Day in the UK or Remembrance Day in Canada, Veterans Day in the United States, whatever it is called Mm -hmm. in your jurisdiction. That's what this day is commemorating. I think it's disrespectful and frankly unhinged to march in support of Hamas or any terrorist organization, but to march in support of Palestinian civilians and Israeli civilians and in support of peace in general. No, I think that's entirely appropriate. And I think to uh, call on the police to make sure that they're doing their jobs and to make sure that they're keeping people safe and making sure that these uh, marches don't descend into violence, which they sometimes do. Of course, we just talked about that yeah. uh, scene at Concordia. I mean, no, I think this is entirely appropriate, regardless of what day it is. And I think that many people who are veterans listening to this show right now would agree with me. Roy, how do you view it? Uh, I'm a former member of the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve. Uh, Remembrance Day is a day on which we salute the sacrifice of multiple generations to safeguard the democratic principles by which we live in this nation and coexist largely respectfully on an individual basis, at least. But your question, uh, Greg, is whether tomorrow's Remembrance Day march in the UK is being treated disrespectfully if the march includes groups supporting either side of the Israel-Hamas war. My dad fought and was captured at Dunkirk when he was 19. He faced death every minute, so respecting Remembrance Day is very very personal to me. Look, if a similar situation were to occur in Germany, where pro-Hamas demonstrations were engaged in openly and publicly. Anyone participating in this manner who's not a German citizen or permanent resident tomorrow faces deportation or a similar march faces deportation. The move, this particular move began in Europe when President Macron of France banned pro-Hamas demonstrations virtually immediately following October 7. Anyone participating in such demonstrations in France faces criminal charges and potentially years of imprisonment. And in recent days, Macron, who is Trudeau's pal on the international scene, of course, has similarly demanded deportation of such individuals if they're not French citizens or permanent residents. If you have to look to the police to supervise, if you will, 
an armistice or or, or a Remembrance Day commemoration, you know things are spinning out of control. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a it's a more a case of empowering them, isn't it, Roy? Um, that's I I think police don't feel empowered right now, and that's up to their superiors. That's up to chiefs of police. Look, it isn't dissimilar to the convoy. It really isn't in the sense that the cops just didn't seem to know what to do. When can we step in? What's a crime? What's hate speech? What's just civil disobedience and trespassing? They didn't seem where to know. Does this, where does this confusion emanate from? From the cop, well, from law enforcement. No, it emanates from a much higher, if you will, civil authority, from the political spectrum, from the governments, provincially and particularly federally. If the cops are unsure, we have to ask ourselves why. You're saying so it's politicians influencing those who would influence police. And I I agree that that exists, but people have to push through that sometime. If you're a leader, if you're a police chief, your job is to lead and your job is to tell your men and women to enforce. But but however, if you look at police leadership, they're also politicians. No, I know that. Yeah, yeah. The cop cop on the ground, the the police officer on the ground has to know hmm. what his or her options are very clearly. And I would submit that at this particular time, in a broad spectrum, they don't. It's very muddy. It's very muddy right now. I want to um, move to a couple other issues, but I do want to get in this conversation about a humanitarian window because it's pretty new just in the last 10, 11 hours. We had CBS correspondent Robert Berger from Jerusalem joining us on Toronto Today just earlier, and I asked him about the concept of this humanitarian window and how it's being received in Israel. They're going to have these each day. In fact, it was extended to six hours today. Okay. Uh, and, and the time of day is, is generally about the same from 10 a.m. or so till 2 p.m., maybe 4 p.m. today. Um, so people know that this is happening. And basically the, the idea is uh, to get civilians out of northern Gaza, uh, Palestinian civilians, and move them toward the south, which is considered safe. Okay, so there, there it is. A lot of time, Coulter, a three-hour warning for a potential six-hour window. A lot of people were just shouting ceasefire and having it on their signs. And I understand people want peace. I understand as well people are, are aching with the humanitarian loss of life here um, in Gaza. There's no question about that. But I want to know if you think Israel deserves some credit for offering up these humanitarian windows when they know that the other side would be quite unwilling to do so. I will give credit to anyone who will stop the killing of innocent civilians while neutralizing Hamas, which, again, is a terrorist organization. But a ceasefire is only going to work if everybody involved played by the rules, right? I mean, we can hopefully trust that the Israeli government is going to do that. But when it comes to Hamas, I don't think anybody would uh, believe that they're going to play fairly, including Hamas. They've demonstrated an inability to do that. And I think that the... uh, I kind of understand the reticence of the Israeli government to agree to one initially, but the world is getting louder on this one over what what are we at? Almost 11,000 Palestinian civilian deaths at this point. Um, And that's assuming that the numbers being reported are accurate. I would imagine they're probably a little conservative, but a lot of people are perceiving what the Israeli government is doing as collective punishment. And I don't know if people are going to be happy enough with this. I mean, even the U.S. government, which historically I don't think any of us could call uh, exactly dovish when it comes to conflict. I mean, even Joe Biden's calling for a three day pause to coordinate humanitarian aid. This is going to be way more than enough for some people or way more than they're willing to stomach. And it's yeah. going to be not nearly enough for other people. But I think ninety nine point nine percent of people on this earth right now 
just want peace. They want the they want the 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 killing of innocent civilians to end. They want terrorism to end. We all want the same thing. It's just people have different approaches. They think we'll work. Roy, after 9-11, um, you and I were both on the radio then. The U.S. got a lot wrong, a lot wrong. And when you're fighting an idea and not a, an armed forces from another country, it can lead you into really tragic directions. What's your thought on opening these windows here? The U.S. clearly had some influence on Israel to do that, as Coulter hinted. I don't think anybody doubts Joe Biden's fingerprints are on these humanitarian pauses. So, Greg, the answer to your question is yes. Israel deserves credit for humanitarian four-hour windows. I would think that to be self-evident. How about Hamas? How much does Hamas care about civilians in Gaza? There's the, they're the government, supposedly. I watched a video by U.S. media commentator Jake Tapper earlier this morning. Mm-hmm. Tapper played audio of Hamas representatives and their views, as asked by international journalists. Question, why did Hamas build hundreds of kilometers of tunnels under Gaza? Answer, so Hamas fighters would have a place to seek shelter during Israeli bombardments. Question. Why didn't Hamas build air raid shelters for the Palestinians of Gaza? Answer, because the Palestinians are mostly refugees and they're the responsibility of the United Nations, not the responsibility of Hamas. Question, isn't Hamas concerned about the deaths of civilians in situations where they're exposed to war fighting their neighborhoods? Answer, um, martyrs are always going to be the result of fights for freedom. He pointed to 30 million Russians who died opposing the Nazi invasion of the USSR, 3.6 million Vietnamese who died as North Vietnam fought the United States, millions of Afghans dying fighting first the Russians, then the Americans. So draw your own conclusions to your own question from the replies of Hamas representatives to questions asked about media and direct interviews about Hamas commitment to the Palestinians in Gaza. I would suggest to you, based on the answers they gave, it's not there. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to start hearing stories about Israel attacking hospitals when in reality um, they're attacking Hamas leaders hiding in Gaza hospitals. Everyone knows this. Not many people who have. Why did you build hundreds of kilometers Bingo. of tunnels under under Gaza? Yeah. To it, protect our fighters. Why didn't you build hmm. air raid shelters? Because the Palestinians are mostly refugees and they're the responsibility of the United Nations. Answers from Hamas representatives yeah. to international journalists. Doesn't that answer it? All right, let's get to something that keeps us a little more calm and placid. The fight about climate change. Let's fight. Let's fight. The Green Party leader of Canada. Roy, I'm going to start with you because you're going to be gold on this one. Yeah, I, I, this is like throwing a volleyball up on the net and, and you're on a stepladder uh, to spike it down. The Green Party leader of Canada shreds Justin Trudeau. It's kind of a common thing lately for not hitting climate targets. But he's saying we're all going to hell in a handbasket. We represent, by the way, about 1.2% of global emissions worldwide. So that's cool. But I think we all agree climate change is real. I think we all agree we need to do things. Is this a legitimate fear that a push and shove on Canadians' wallets and minds about climate? I'm worried it could turn people entirely off on the issue, and I don't want that. How do you see it, Roy? Well, first of all, Greg, I work out hard every day. I don't need a stepladder. To the <laughs> I didn't say how that it could have been a low net, one of those one of those elementary school nets. You never know. Let's see some pull-ups, right? Let's see some pull-ups. <laughs> hey, I do them every day, every single day. Well, I'm going to subscribe um, to that OnlyFans account so we can see some of that. Oh, there we go. Workout okay, I'll, post the videos. I'll post the videos. Look, first of all, the climate targets are the climate targets of Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Gilbo and the Liberal Party. They're not the targets of all Canadians, which is not to say Canadians challenging the targets of Mr. Trudeau are not aware of the need to address climate change. And of course, the impact of economic reality, specifically 
the rapid interest rate hikes and inflation spiral, which according to national polling has more than 20% of Canadians tapped out and 40% losing sleep over personal financial fears like, will I be able to afford a roof over my head, food on my family's table, clothing and transportation needs? And of course, these fears over these millions of Canadians and their families will impact the supportive climate taxation objectives of the Trudeau and Gilbo government. We live in a country which shows, according to U of T research, 6.9 million Canadians, including 1.8 million children, living in food insecure homes and realities. That should answer the question without even the need to enter Trudeau's let's compromise our own Liberal Mm. Party climate objectives by selective removal of the carbon tax on home eating oil. Coulter, you're younger than me um, by like several months. And then and then I could keep counting more several months and more several a week or two. Sure, we could. But but I'm going to ask you as a younger person, do you look and say, I'm sorry, like this does impact me more. I do want policy and I want us to be able to stick to it regardless of what it is. If it doesn't dig into everybody's bottom line, which we're all feeling right now. Well, you can say that about anything, right? I like this until it costs me some money. And the reality of the carbon tax is that it was designed to be revenue neutral. And the whole point of it was you're going to get sticker shock. That's a disincentive to buying more gasoline. That's a disincentive to X, Y, Z. And then you get these rebates quarterly or whenever they come in. And that replenishes the money that you would have spent on these things. And so the plan was designed to make empower Canadians to, to make these decisions on our own. The reality, though, is the Libs' credibility on this has been completely undermined, right? I mean, I'm in favor of a carbon tax, which, for the record, has been a conservative idea. I think it was Preston Manning who came up with it, or at least supported it in this country. But when it isn't applied evenly, and it seems so easy to suspend in some cases, Canadians become bitter, and understandably. I mean, uh, what if a home heating oil is responsible for, what, 4% of total uh, emissions or mm. uh, whatever? And that that is a small number. That is objectively a small number when it comes to the grand scheme of emissions in this country. But we just, we become bitter. We go, well, why are they getting something and we're not? Yeah. Despite the fact that, I mean, people using home heating oil, it's the most expensive way to heat your home. And this is another tax on lower income Canadians. I think we talked about this last week on the show, Greg. Yeah. It's more expensive. It's to convert to a uh, heat pump is also uh, prohibitively expensive for some people. And so they're feeling the pinch. But again, we're not necessarily understanding or appreciating that nuance. And so what the liberals have kind of put themselves in right now is a situation where they're diluting policy. They're not getting the results that they promised mm-hmm. and they're not getting points for any of it. I got about 45 seconds left. But Roy, I want you, you talk to Pierre Polyever a lot on your show. Are you at all worried that a Polyever majority government wouldn't be under a lot of pressure to handle climate for the four or five years they govern? I mean, I hear that from people. Do you think it's a fair criticism? Well, of course, it's a necessary uh, investigation and questions need to be asked of Mr. Polyev. It's what you do when you get there that matters. And now we have to judge and adjudge what his positions are and react responsibly as voters and stop stop refusing to vote. We only have about 60 percent of people in this country bothering to vote on Election Day. But let's just close it with this one, if I may. The the reason Mr. Trudeau did away with the carbon tax for this three year window, which conveniently includes a 2025 election, is that he doesn't want to lose those Atlantic Canada seats which he needs to keep to stay in government. That's that's the reason they did what they did. Hey, guys, Gilbo didn't even respond. Yeah. Trudeau's decision. There was nothing from Gilbo on Twitter. He was so 
upset. I wouldn't want to be at the cabinet table after that decision was announced. He's um he's an interesting duck. I said duck. I want to clarify that, but he's an interesting guy. Let's uh we'll leave it at that. Coulter, you have a great show today. Have a great weekend. And Roy, I know you'll have a fantastic Remembrance Day tomorrow um and and a show as well. I know what the holiday means to you. Thank you as well for your service and I'll be listening tomorrow and and we all will. Thank you for the time. Yeah, thank Gentlemen, you. Thank you.